Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Greetings. I'm Amy Biancoli, family editor here at Mad in America. Today I'll be speaking with Deborah Kasdan, author of Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir, in which she describes her extraordinary late sister Rachel, poet, musician, free spirit, and her decades-long journey through psychiatric treatment until finally she found a place of peace and community. Kasdan is a longtime business and technology writer who pivoted to memoir writing on a quest to tell her sister's story, joining the Westport Writers' Workshop. Her book, published in October by She Writes Press, is a moving and nuanced portrait filled with love and grief, candor, and complexity. Deborah Kasdan, thank you for speaking with me today. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Amy. This is obviously a big topic. It's deeply personal. The book covers so much ground, so many years, uh, your sister's entire life, your your relationship with her, uh, the, the family dynamics, there's so much in it. And she was a delible and indelible person. Uh, quite a life, quite a story. I know we don't have time to dig into every last piece of it, but for a start, if you could tell us who she was, what you loved about her, so that as we get into this conversation and dig a little deeper into all that happened, people will have a sense of who Rachel was and what she means to you still. Well, Rachel was my big sister, first and foremost to me, born three and a half years before I was. She was a leader to me. Uh, she was a, as you said, a free spirit that became increasingly clear as years went on. She led me places. She advised me on many things, what to read, what to wear, what teachers to take. And she was a buffer between our parents and me because she was the first child and she pushed the limits. And when she fought with them and got concessions about what we could or couldn't do, um, it took some of the heat off me. It, you know, it gave me a little bit of space. She was angry a lot at my parents, and I go into the book about what that could have been about, especially my mom, and I think that had to do with those first three and a half years before I was born. But I knew her as just, you know, the, the kid, the older kid in my life who, who knew things that I didn't know. And as you said, she was musical, she was artistic, poetic. Um, she, she was my, my role model for, for a long time. She was an inspiration. Yeah, yeah, especially with the writing, yeah. And then you describe, you describe in the book her youth, um, and you describe uh, the time she spent in Israel, traveling, having adventures, working in a kibbutz. And then it was after she came back, uh, when she had her, her first psychotic break, right? She she believed she was being followed by two men from New York City to San Francisco. So I, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, that was the first time I saw anything that made me uh, wonder whether she was okay. My parents had been on her case a long time, well, for a few years since she got back, wanting her to settle down and have some direction and 
go to college or she didn't want to go to college then to work and but basically to stay in one place she she was very impulsively dashing around the country so she came back from San Francisco when I was still in high school she sat down and and told me that she was being followed by two men she saw them when she was in San Francisco now she had come back from San Francisco because her boss had called my parents and told her something wasn't right, but I still didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. Um, it, you know, f as far as I was concerned, you know, my parents, her bosses, they didn't like her lifestyle, maybe the way she dressed, or you know, she was kind of a bohemian. Uh, so I didn't know what that meant. But then when she told me personally that two men were following her and, and I could see it in her eyes that she was afraid, I knew something was wrong. And I knew, you know, maybe my parents had reason to be worried, something which I had, something which I had resisted believing. What was interesting is that at, at that point in your sister's story, you have this memory that you describe in the book as a family watching Khrushchev give a talk uh, on television to the UN and your dad had been he was a he was an activist a leftist he was he was very liberal and apparently he was on the FBI's radar because in the middle of what just in the middle of watching this they literally showed up at, at at your doorstep right i mean what a story and i'm reading this and it's like well how how could that not have fed into what ultimately led to her first psychotic break it it almost it's almost logical so logical that when my daughter read that i don't think she remembered when i told her about it but she read that she said well maybe she was she was involved in political activities i so i finally did write to the fbi and they had no file on her so she wasn't being followed i mean this because that was already past the the cold war the cold war had broken by then but yeah my dad had and my mom, too, were involved in left-wing politics, and uh, ACLU was considered a, a communist front, and they were active in that. And and I th and my father had actually joined the party in, when he was in college, UFC. A lot of people did. And they, they called themselves fellow travelers. So, of course, they were on the FBI list, and the FBI— uh, every time my dad took a new job, they showed up to let him know that they were, that, you know, they knew where he was and please would he name any names. And of course he wouldn't. Uh, that's basically what they wanted. So yes, that, that must have fed into her. I thought it was a big joke. Um, it was just funny. Me and my younger brother kind of laughed it off, but she was older. So if that was an she was already a teenager, and she, you know, she was very well read, very aware of what was going on, and she she must have um, felt the danger that was inherent in this. She took it seriously, and I remember talking to a, a woman who roomed with her in that three year period before she was first hospitalized, and. That apartment house was getting busted for, I don't know, pot or whatever, and by the by the cops and and Rachel just kind of lectured her on what her rights were, and because our parents had always told us you never, you never speak to the FBI, you don't have to speak to them, um, and they never did. They just said no, thank you, and um, so she was well aware of her civil rights. 
she knew what the what the score was. So the idea of being followed was was on her mind. And of course, now we know so much. There's so much research connecting uh, trauma with psychotic breaks, and and it's just the, the the psychosocial context and all that all that somebody lives through. Um, but at, at at the time when she was she was diagnosed with with schizophrenia at age 23, she was ultimately hospitalized many times. Right? She was in and out of the hospital many many times. Yeah. And how did you? F- feel as her as her sister with all of this happening uh, when she was first hospitalized and what were some of the changes that you might have seen w- affecting your sister after she was first put on on drugs and and uh, and committed oh she changed after she uh, was medicated in St. Louis she changed utterly just totally this active dynamic person um she just became flaccid, flaccid. She uh, started uh, getting tardive dyskinesia, the neuromuscular side effects of the, of the narcoleptics. She was still feisty. I mean, she when she had her privileges, she wanted to do what she wanted to do. She had a, a boyfriend who was a former um, patient at the hospital. So she led this kind of life I, that, it, that I wasn't part of. And she was in and out, so she still had opportunities to to do things. But she lost all her her vigor. You know, her eyes weren't the same. She gained a whole lot of weight from from the medications, of course. And she still had interest in drawing. She still wanted to do. For a few years there, she was still writing poetry, and a lot of the and some of the poems in the book were. Um, during those first few years. So she maintained some of her interests, um, but uh, she was more tractable. She she wasn't as oppositional as she used to be, at least not overtly that I could see. So it was hard. It, it, you know, it, it, and the situation at home became pretty chaotic with my parents and her and what to do and the hospital and nobody ever agreed on anything. So I... Uh, I became kind of um, depressed myself. I, I didn't know what was happening. It was very confusing. Well, yeah. I mean, and how how can it not be? And I don't have the same experience that that you have. I didn't. My sister, my late sister Lucy, um, who died in '92, wasn't diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia, but she was diagnosed with a million other things, <laughs> and she spent years being hospitalized. Even though there are obvious differences, I was just so struck by so many parallels. And, and one, I think, that I, I wanted to ask you about was this, how difficult it is to see the change in your sister. And, my, and Lucy was my big sister. She ultimately, as I said, she died in 92 by suicide. But the transformation was so hard to watch because she actually was an aspiring concert pianist. So when I grew up, she was like my genius older sister. And uh, and then as soon as she started being treated and being hospitalized and drugged, around the same time, she stopped being able to play the piano because she couldn't concentrate. And in the context of the time, I didn't really know what was happening without, oh, that's her quote-unquote mental illness. But you know, looking back, like, oh, well, it, undoubtedly, almost undoubtedly, that was uh, 
the the drugs she was on. So not to go off on this uh, little side conversation about my sister, but I was really, really deeply moved because I get it. You know, you're watching your older sister who you grow up admiring and who's just, oh my gosh, she was just everything to me and so in control of so much. And then she just kind of she was almost muted. It was like the mute button put on her in a lot of ways, not on so much on her personality, but what she was able to do. And it's hard. It's really hard to see that happen to somebody you love. Yeah, she was putting together a book of poems those first years. And um, I think the project fell apart as a project. The poems remained, of course, I have them, but you know, the idea of publishing them. People, Somebody asked me recently, did she ever publish? No, she didn't. But she would have, I believe, just like your sister would have given concerts, you know? Yeah. And and another question I, I, I have for you in that regard is that I, I've never stopped asking what ifs, you know, what might have happened in an alternate timeline to try to say, well, what, what, if something had changed, if this had changed, if that had changed, would she have gone on to a, a career as a pianist? And would your sister have gone on and to have a significant career as a, as a, as a poet? What if, do you, do you ask yourself that? I ask the what ifs more in terms of what if her early life had been different. I have these counterfactual scenarios that would have pre- prevented that anger and that lack of trust that fed into whatever caused her psychosis and and remained. I think if she had not been hospitalized and given all those medications, how and would have had a a, a treatment that um was non-judgmental and was supportive, I think she might have been she might have continued her poetry. She she was also interested in art. I mean, she she did switch around her interests a lot. Um, but I thought I think she would have found a community, some Bohemian community, and and lived some um, interesting life, and been productive and creative. She loved she loved the kibbutz work. She loved the um, outdoors, um, and I. I think she would have ended up, I could see her in California, maybe on a commune, maybe in an artist community. I think she would have had an interesting life. She did love travel. She was always traveling, and I think she would have continued to do that. Well, it's one of the things you bring out, uh, one aspect, later aspect of her story that you bring out, is that ultimately she did find community, um, and and she wound up going out to the Pacific Northwest and um, some, the period before her death at 59, uh, she connected with a caseworker, but he was compassionate and he also saw her inside her in a way, saw her in a way that, that so many other people in, in psychiatric treatment seemed not to. And he, he saw the creative spirit and encouraged her to get back to her poetry, right? He did. He did. You know, she was so so damaged by all her hospitalizations and medications and whatever that the hosp- people in the hospital had a hard time believing her educational level and her past. And I see it in the notes. I, I obtained Oregon State's a, a whole carton full, a big carton full of hospital records. And they just saw nothing of 
who she was because she didn't talk to them. She she did not bear fools lightly. You, you know, she 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 just ignored them or blew them off. So Steve, the this uh, caseworker who helped her, wanted to get her out of the back ward of Damage State Hospital in Oregon, and he and she was on a trial um, a trial program with this agency in Eugene, and as part of this trial program, she was uh, had a janitorial assignment in the agency's reception area, and he went to check on her, and he found the poem. She had written on the typewriter there. That was the poem, Water. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not a poet, but this sure looks good. And he gave it to a, a senior colleague uh, who read it and said, yeah, this is good. And uh, Rachel was not performing her janitorial duties that brilliantly. You know, there were limited places for this work, work uh, residential program. So at a staff meeting, he he had the senior, his senior colleague, who was also a poet, read the read this poem, and um, he said you could hear a pin drop, and they they accepted her into the program. He had to do a little, a few maneuvers to get her in, um, but he made sure that you know the the big issue is getting housing, and it took a few tries before she found a place that she could stay in. She was not an easy tenant, uh, but. He respected her so much. He, they talked about poetry and books and ideas. And I, I just recently saw again his, his, uh, his case notes because the hospital, they were in the Oregon State Records. And um, he said, you know, we talked about um, Anne Sexton, who's a poet, kind of in the Sylvia Plath mode. And she really knows her stuff. Nobody in all those years in the hospitals ever t talked to her about anything literary or intellectual. And he understood how people could seem impaired but or maybe just different and also be very talented. And so he understand this type of neurodiversity, whatever you want to call it. And he, he was not put off by her lack of trust. She she could be very suspicious of people. You know, with good cause, considering what, what was done to her, but you know, she wasn't able to control it at, at all times. So that sometimes prevented her from getting help that she needed. But he was able to get around that. And I see over and over in her letters, Steve's a good guy. He's a good guy. Uh, he, he gained her trust by seeing her as a person, understanding her interests, and overlooking all the things that were obnoxious about her, which, you know, there were a lot of, you know, her behavior could be very off-putting. And he, he, that didn't bother him. He, he just accepted her. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And, and of course, in, in, in the book, this comes, this, this comes near the end after your descriptions of all that she'd been through and not just her hospitalizations, but she spent time unhoused, living in the streets at different points, and you also describe the impact on your on your family and and but coming coming around to this period at the end where she's she found community, she actually had her own little cabin, right? It was a little house in this no man's land between um 
Eugene and Springfield. It wasn't really zoned. And uh, they were able, and the agency had a few cabins in the woods. So she wasn't totally alone, but she had, you know, her own space and her privacy. And um, it wasn't far from the university. And uh, she loved sitting in on classes. A lot of, she was allowed to do that. And she loved to walk. She loved nature. So her favorite thing was just to t take walks. And so she, she, she just loved to, to uh, she loved that area that was perfect for her. Yeah, I love that little story. And, and, and you know, and, and again, going back to the point that she, she was finally being seen in a way that she wasn't as a psychiatric patient. Like, because so often, we see this so often, that as soon as somebody gets labeled, treated, drugged, hospitalized, that it seems like the system and, and society at large, too, just like stops listening, stops seeing and stops listening. And I, I just thought that was, this was such a beautiful example of what happens when we listen. Nowadays, we have things like open dialogue and hearing voices. And I mean, do you wonder how those might have helped your sister? Yes, she needed to be accepted. She needed a place where she wouldn't be judged. And I often think of that word. She, Everybody was so quick to judge what she did. Um, and my mother, I think that she was just so afraid. Uh, she wouldn't even let friends go visit her. And, you know, my mom's not a mean, wasn't a mean person, but I think that was something coming from her own fear. So I think she would have been helped by peer specialists. And I think it would have helped the family to be able to talk to peer specialists, which they didn't have then, but if they, that I know of. Um, but if they, if they had talked to people who had been through the system and survived it, and so that we wouldn't be so afraid of what was happening, and we wouldn't distance ourselves so much. Um, you know, I think that the family is a wasted resource. You know, she had three siblings and two caring parents, and we all loved her and wanted to help her, but we didn't know how. And I think if somebody had sat with the family and given us reasons to hope and to understand examples of people who get through this, um, examples of recovery and healing, then I think that we, we could have mobilized in a more constructive way. What we tried just didn't work out because we, we weren't educated ourselves. I mean, we were educated as much as anybody was for those times. I was also thinking when you were talking about the impact on your family and what would have helped is I think families still struggle to be seen and heard, like when they're advocating for uh, for someone they love. But then it was even it was even harder because there was less awareness. Um, is that something that well, that we should still be working on is is engaging families more. And I know there are programs that in, involve uh, you know peer workers coming in and talking to families and things like that. And there's more. There are more um, groups that are forming among family members themselves. Trust and being non-judgmental were the main things that my family could have um, learned. Rachel was very difficult. I mean, she. She 
was very oppositional with my parents. Um, and maybe she couldn't have lived with them. Maybe she had to find an alternative placement. But certainly when her siblings were adults and wanted to help, you know, I felt horrible that I didn't feel I could have her near me. I, you know, I had my own family, and I felt terribly guilty about that. Which brings me to the issue that I kind of sense today, where parents want to be in charge of their adult children who are vulnerable for all kinds of reasons. And the siblings may or may not disagree with them. So you may have, you know, different viewpoints within the family. Um, and the parents may not always be able to help. So then that's where you need community, whether they call it outpatient or facilities that can help with housing and and job coaching or, or, or education coaching if they're in college still. And then siblings might be able to to support those efforts in ways that they can't now. I mean, we were separated geographically through some just odd circumstances and um Maybe, and I think that hurt, hurt Rachel's situation um, because, the, you know, even if you're not living with your family, even if you're not really close to your family, you know, like there, you, you want to be a part of the network when there's a wedding or, you know, a bar mitzvah or an engagement or something. You want to be part of that. And so I think there's a big loss when there's this geographic separation that doesn't have to be maintained. Um, I think it's good to try to keep a network, a viable network going. Um, and I think families need support to do that, and not just parents, siblings as well. I understand guilt after losing a sibling, after losing anybody you love to any, any kind of difficult circumstances. I've, I've felt that guilt after each of the suicide losses that have affected me. And, and, like you can say rationally, okay, I did my best. And it's easy for someone like me to say to you, Deb, you, you shouldn't give yourself a hard time because you did your best. But I also understand, I also understand where the guilt comes from. And I, I think that's such a huge piece of the family, the loved one experience when, when, when someone is in distress and you you want to help, you want to stay connected with them, you want to, you know, in an ideal world, you want to wave the magic wand and make everything better, but you're, you can't. And I, I totally, I totally get it. And as I, as again, as I read your book, it's just like, ah, I feel it. You know, I really feel it because I just think this is, this is part of the family experience that I think people don't always talk about or understand. And you're very open about your feelings of guilt in the book. I think that if there hadn't been such stigma, and there's still a lot of stigma, though less, but there's still a lot, I, I wouldn't have been so closed off about it. I didn't talk about Rachel at work or with my friends. I didn't deny, deny her existence and I occasionally found the opportunity to mention her. But, you know, it wasn't a day-to-day, -day, a week-to-week -week thing that, that I would talk about Rachel. And I think being closing off that part of myself made the, the guilt worse. I think part of the guilt was not acknowledging her 
existence in the full sense. Again, I didn't deny it, but I didn't really make her a part of my life. I, I get it. I I understand. And again, I know our, like it's different. Your story is different. Her story is different. But I I understand. And and I I'm also wondering about writing the book because um, I've written a couple memoirs of uh, grief, which for me were grief work. And I remember after Lucy died, I, I wound up writing a book about my childhood family. And I've always found that whenever I, I write these personal works uh, addressing grief and loss, it, it kind of, it's a way for me to create a narrative and understand my loved ones better. And I wondered if you had the same experience with what, like what you learned about Rachel, what came to the fore, were there healing aspects for you in, in writing the book? And was that one reason why you wrote it? Well, it certainly brought me closer to her because I just immersed myself um, in her, particularly her letters, letters I had never seen before uh, to my parents. Um, and I learned that there was love between her and my mother. And so much of my guilt was bound up with my relationships with the other members of the family. But when I was able to step back and see them having their a relationship that I wasn't in the middle of, you know, that was very healing to read, to read the letters between her and my mother. Reading the hospital records was terrifying, as you can imagine. Um, but yet I saw, you know, I saw a very strong and independent-minded person. So to read the poems again through the years, you know, they did get darker and darker as time went on. Um, but that she never gave up her writing was very inspiring to me. You know, even after all she had gone through, she sent me, I remember once she's, she was being maybe transferred to another hospital, she sent me her journals, her writing, her stories, because she trusted me, you know, to keep them. You know, and I, and I thought about that, and I said, we're connected, you know, with the writing. That, that connects us somehow. And um, that was very healing. And to be writing about her, it almost felt like I was writing with her, and that was healing. That brought back, you know, the older sister I admired to me. And again, I completely understand because I have, I've had that experience as well. And I was actually going to ask you whether you felt like you were, in a way, conversing with your sister, like visiting with her, because it, I've always felt like whenever, whenever I write or even talk, it's like I'm learning about the people I love who aren't here any longer. And in a weird way, and you tell me if this sounds at all familiar with you. Do you? I almost feel as though I'm still maintaining a relationship with with Lucy. Like every time I write about her, I'm having a conversation with her. I'm learning from her. I'm hearing her voice, and uh, I I feel like th this is at least my experience of grief, and I've never heard that kind of talked about. But I do. You, do you get what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm definitely, definitely. And when the the publisher's uh, designer came up with the cover art. I said, what? It didn't make any sense. But the more I sat with it, the more I understood it. She she took, she, they had asked for a picture of the two of us together. So I took 
when we were little, you know, I don't know, six and three maybe. And she took this picture and the designer and put it behind the type, the platen of the typewriter. So it's coming out of typewriter. And yes, we're writing together. Um, and I'm writing about her and I'm talking about her. And um, she's gets to have her own say because her letters and her poems are in the book. So yeah, I feel it was a, a joint effort. And then every time I talk about the book, I'm talking about her and her repeating her name, Rachel Goodman. And I got in touch with people who knew her, uh, who I didn't know, and we talk about her. And then having the book was is reason to discuss her and share our memories. And now I know Rachel. I know Rachel Goodman from reading the book. And that that's the, the other that's the other beauty. Yeah, because she was so marginalized. I just weep at at the amount of marginalization she endured. Being homeless, um, brought to the emergency room, arrested. And she was just and she was considered a, you know, a street person. And it, to me to have her name out there to have other people know her. It's just wonderful. And it brings to life, obviously you're telling her story, but also I, want, I also wanted to ask you about the, the push now in different parts of the country for forced treatment. Um, and, you know, obviously in New York City, you've got Eric Adams uh, pushing to have unhoused people hospitalized, and then you've got everything going on in California. And how do you feel about that? Does that break your heart does that does that make you think of make make you think of Rachel yeah one of the reasons we left her on the west coast when she landed up there I didn't want her you know I thought if she was near me I live not too far from New York City she would have made her way to New York City and she would have been one of those homeless people in New York City at least for a while you know between stays with me or in respite places I mean, the irony is they don't even have place, you know, when they when they sweep them up and put them in, in the hospitals, hospitals can't keep them and they don't have it, you know, so they just go back. It's, 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 it's a fake solution, basically. And I hear that in California, the, um, the uh, counties that are supposed to implement those uh, care courts are pushing back because they don't have the funding to do it. So it all just goes back to no funding. They're not even real solutions. They're just political theater, if you ask me. That's my opinion. It's just political theater. And the real solutions, which are community-based, um, outpatient treatment, community-based housing solutions, um, and peer counseling, coaching, that's where the money should be going. So, yeah, it breaks my heart when people just you know, pass a, a, an unhoused person on the street and says, it's a nuisance and, 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 and say that they're a nuisance uh, to their lifestyle. Well, you know, what, or, or their quality of life. Oh, that's the term they use, the quality of life, that they spoil the quality of life for their community. Well, every person deserves a quality of life. And when you hog all the resources, <laughs> you're depriving other people of a quality of life. Yeah, and they they walk past someone they don't even want to see someone on the street. They don't want to hear them, don't want to see them, and 
Right. And and there's a person there. There's a person with a history. There's a, a family that loves them that may not have been able to help them. But there's a person with talent and hopes and dreams and disappointments. And yeah. Yeah. So you included your sister's own voice in the book, her letters and poems, for instance. And um, how important was that to you since she was someone whose voice wasn't wasn't heard. Well, you know, when I first started yeah, writing, I was so in my own head about what trying to figure out what I felt and believed. I had read her poems, but people who saw the initial manuscripts wanted to see more of Rachel. And I said, yeah, well, I have her letters. I've been reading them. Um, so I took care to excerpt them, weave them into the story. And I realized how important it was. I, I didn't start that way, but I developed it, people encouraged me, and I became, you know, more emboldened as as I did it. Well, yes, her her voice works. Um, and then picking the poems out to uh, include became very meaningful to me. Well, one of them, really beautiful poem, closes the book and inspired the title, Roll Back the World. Could you, could you read that for our listeners? Yeah. That's the one that, that she wrote when she was supposed to be mopping the floor. <laughs> so keep that in mind. And I do like to imagine, if I can just preface this, that she wrote this, that or she was thinking about Israel, her time in Israel because she was near the Mediterranean. And I like to think of her on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea when she wrote this. In Delicate Aroma... I walked the beach at night, where the moon joined sand into sea and the waves rolled back the world. Here shattered night makes clean each grain it meets, where yesterday a sand crab walked and found its mate for safety. Roll back the world, for so I have been free, with a crab and the sea and my shadow on the moonlit beach. That's beautiful. Our guest today was Deborah Kasdan, author of Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir, recently published by She Writes Press. For more information, see DebraKasdan.com, and that's Deborah, spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H, and Kasdan, K-A-S-D-A-N. Deborah, thank you again so much. Well, thank you for reading that beautiful poem by your sister, Rachel. And thank you for joining us here at Madden America. Well, thanks, Amy, for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. It's very meaningful. To me as well. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.